Hey everyone, and welcome to the Christ Family Church Podcast. We are so glad that you've made the decision to take time out of your day to join us virtually. Whether you're at home right now or listening on your way to work, we hope that you enjoy this week's teaching from Pastor Zachary Fraley. sermon series called Stop the Scroll. And so um, we've been really uh, looking at Moses' life for the past few weeks and learning about how you and I can sort of stop the scroll in our lives instead of just mindlessly doom scrolling until, you know, uh, we either have to go to the bathroom or something pulls us out of it, right? Stopping the scroll in our life and bringing intentionality into it. We've been looking at the life of Moses, and just so you know, next week we're starting a new sermon series on the parables of Jesus, but we've been looking primarily at the life of Moses. The first week, we looked at his burning bush moment, when God said, I am, and said, take off your feet, this is a holy place. How that moment really uh, helped to stop the scroll in Moses' life. And then Pastor Ron talked about um, that moment where Jesus was so intentional in his life, and how you and I are called to stop the scroll in our lives and be intentional. Last week, we looked at um, how great Jethro was as a father and encouraged and loved on our dads. Um, Thanks, dads, for doing all that you do. And then this week, I want to wrap up with the end of Moses' story um, and look at that and how you and I can stop the scroll one more time. Uh, When I look at the life of Moses, one thing that really sticks out that I think about is the unfairness of it all. The thing that just burns my biscuits, that totally, you know, triggers me, is the unfairness of it all. I don't know if you've ever felt this way. You know, some of the kids down here, they were like, yeah, I feel unfairness all the time. You know, I I get frustrated with things all the time. I don't know if you've ever felt that way or if you are, you know, a further along Christian than I am, but I feel unfairness and frustration towards it all the time. Is it just me or are you uh, feeling that as well? For me, it's always something that stops the scroll in my life, especially when I'm scrolling on TikTok and the algorithm knows exactly what is going to stop my scroll. Um, In times, a lot of times, it's unfairness. I don't know what stops the scroll for you personally, but for me, when I see a cop getting like yelled at by somebody who was drunk driving and, you know, unfair to the cop, that's a moment that stops the scroll. Or a Karen yelling at somebody behind the counter who's getting paid like $8 an hour, or a guy getting stuck in an amusement park water tube, Um, That was really unfair to me. It stopped the scroll. Blair was like, you have to close your phone. Like, we can't watch that anymore. Really traumatizing. I don't think I'm going to go to a water park ever again. Um, They had to, like, extract him out of there. Traumatizing. But it seems really unfair. Why? Why, though, do we get hyper-fixated on fairness and unfairness? I think it's because deep in our souls, we know what is right, which I believe is another thing that points us to the truth of Christ. You and I intrinsically know right from wrong. We know moral from immoral, which is a thumbprint of God on our hearts. We know deep down that some things are right and some things are wrong, even though I believe the enemy, Satan, mars that and our awareness a lot of times. But we are even more acutely aware of unfairness when it is directed towards us. When it's directed to somebody else, hey, life, life is unfair, honey. You just got to keep going. But when it's directed towards us, ooh, man, someone gets an extra scoop of uh, goodness on their blizzard at the DQ by my house, unfair, okay? Johnny gets ice cream and I don't because I'm lactose intolerant, unfair, you know? I will bear the consequences, don't worry, give me the whiteies. 
If you have kids, you've probably heard them cry, that's not fair, mom, dad, that's not fair. And then what do you normally tell them? Life isn't fair. It's something I have heard all my life. It's something I've said a lot of times, life isn't fair. And in so many times, we know that. We know deep down life is not fair. We can't expect it. Deep down, we realize life is not fair. And we can tell our kids about it uh, and hope that they realize it. But what happens with us? We want fairness. What happens when we are held to a different standard? We want fairness. What happens when the person at work gets longer lunch breaks than us or someone is put in a position of leadership over us, even though they've only been there for a few more months longer than we have, it isn't fair. When I think of unfairness, one of my favorite pastors comes to mind. His name was uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He had one of the most unfair lives ever. When he was, the, he was one of the most brilliant people to walk this earth. He was born in Germany, actually came to age around um, World War II when it was happening. But before that, his life was unfair. At the age of 12, his brother was killed in the First World War. And from then, his mother's life was changed. She entered a deep depression. She was not really present. She was largely absent from the family's life. It was unfair. In 1922, as he was sitting in school, he heard a gunshot, which he would later learn was the assassination of the foreign minister. In 1927, he wrote a dissertation on the church to become a pastor, which suddenly started to shift because in order for you to be a pastor in the National Church of Germany, you had to agree with this teaching that said that you weren't going to teach about Jesus to Jews. You weren't even going to allow them in your church. He became a visiting scholar, a youth pastor. He came to the U.S., actually lived in New York, went to Union Seminary in New York City. He started an underground seminary called Finkenwalde, which was shut down eventually by the Gestapo. And he was one of the most impactful writers of his time, and I would even argue today, with his writings challenging me personally over the years. I even took a class on Bonhoeffer and all of his works. I quote him many times in my sermon, and I try to read his works even when I don't understand them because he is just brilliant in a way that I can't fathom. If you've ever heard of the teaching of cheap grace versus costly grace, that is a teaching from Bonhoeffer that came from his uh, underground seminary days. But what was most unfair about him was not that his brother died early or that his family didn't understand why he wanted to be a theologian or that he was kicked out of his church for not agreeing to uh, hate Jews or that he never got to marry the love of his life. What was most unfair about him is uh, it were not all these injustices that happened. I think the most unfair thing for Bonhoeffer, in my eyes, was his death. He was arrested in 1943 for a possible conspiracy to uh, uh, assassinate Hitler, which was eventually failed. And the scholars, we don't know if he actually was a part of that, but we also don't know that he wasn't a part of it. We can talk about it later and my opinions on it. But the most unfair thing for Bonhoeffer was that he was jailed by his oppressive regime, and he was in jail for one and a half years in a horrible concentration camp, and it was unfair that he was sentenced to death in a mock trial, and he was killed 11 days before the concentration camp was liberated. Yeah, less than two weeks. I can hold my breath for 11 days, right? 11 days, that is unfair, less than two weeks away. When I think of unfair, when I think of injustice, it's not just that I can't have ice cream because I'm lactose intolerant. I think of Bonhoeffer. When I think of unfair, I think of him. Days away from release, days away from liberation, days away from the promised land, and then he was killed. Killed for trying to save millions of lives. 
I don't know about you, but unfairness in our world seems like uh, it seems to light a fire in me. It is so unfair. It seems to be something that we vocalize as a child, as a teen, even as an adult. But there is a figure in the Bible, a person who had unfairness waged against him in our eyes. But I want to bring a different light to it today. Turning back to Moses, we see a level of unfairness in our eyes. The backstory, the Israelites were out in the desert. They were complaining about heat and lack of water. And Moses went to pray to God. He said, God, these people are all complaining. What can I do? And God told Moses, go and speak to the rock and I'll bring water out of it. Moses got a little bit angry, a little frustrated, a little triggered. Um, Why is this so unfair? Why do I have to be the one, you know, the spokesperson probably? Which is understandable because the people were never thankful for anything that God did. They complained and gossiped all the time, which is not like saved people should be doing. Complaining, mumbling, and groaning. That is the language of the unsaved. But for you and me, thanksgiving should be the language of God's people. So next time you feel the need to let loose, to say unfair, to complain, or to share some drama, if you are saved and believe in Jesus, I want you to remember that immature Israelites were the ones to complain, which is so interesting. I heard a pastor say, it's always the shallow end of the pool that's the loudest. Think about that. Let that sink in. But Moses gets angry. He hits the rock and then God scolds him. Even says that because of what Moses did, he will not enter into the promised land. You won't walk into it. So I want to read in Moses' journey. If you have your Bibles, turn in them to Deuteronomy 34. It's the last book of the Torah, the Old Testament. Um, And the the Torah, what the word we call it is the Tanakh. um, And it stands for Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. Torah are the first five books. The Nevi'im are the writings of the prophets. And the Ketuvim are the histories. And so we are at the end of the Torah, about to enter into Joshua, which is one of the Ketuvims, the history. And here we see one of what I have always perceived to be one of the most unfair moments in all of the Bible. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which which was opposite of Jericho. And the Lord showed him all of the land, Gilead as far as Dan, Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Western Sea. You are starting to spread out to see a little bit more about it. The Negev, the plain that is, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, that is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I've let you see it with your eyes. The whole Old Testament, the Torah, is leading up to this moment. This is the climax of the first five books. I've let you see it with your eyes. And then he says, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite of Beth Peor. But no one knows this place. No one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he dimmed, and I love this part. His, eyes, his eye was undimmed, his vigor unabated, and the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. I remember the first time I ever read this. I don't know about you, if you read this ever in Sunday school, but for me, I was a little baby Christian, about 22 years old. I had just started reading the Bible, really, and I was devouring it. I remember I would work at this place called Bucky's, which is, was the largest gas station in the world. I would work there from 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. I would get off work and try and scrub off the smell of kolaches. 
and then I would sit down and start devouring the Old Testament. I would pour over the Bible, and it was riveting. I was so amazed because what had happened throughout my life was that people said the Bible is boring, it is a horrible read, it is not even applicable today. And when I actually started reading it, my eyes were opened. I was like, wow, this is not boring at all. So I was reading through it. I get to this point, and the Lord showed him all of the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim, Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Western Sea, all of the places. It sounds so exciting. You know, you feel in your heart, something is about to happen. You are expecting, God, are you going to forgive him? Are you going to actually let him walk into the promised land? The story is unfolding in front of you. You can see it in your mind. It is beautiful and glorious. And then God says, this is the land that I swore to Abraham, Isaac, to Jacob, that I will give it to your offspring. I've let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. Oh, deflating. That's hard. I don't know about you, but when I first read that, I was like, Lord, what, what is it? I felt that it was unfair for Moses. Excuse me? We've had this amazing buildup to this moment right here, the moment when the promised land is there, and then God, you're not going to let Moses pass. Unfair. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that was unfair. A kid not getting his toy, that is unfair but I feel as though we need a different word to describe what is happening to Moses in this moment. He flees Egypt. He becomes a shepherd. He sees a burning bush. He flees from Israel or frees Israel from the Pharaoh, parts the Red Sea, does so many miracles and literally saves his people. And he gets to the promised land. And God says, not today, not ever. And he dies. I mean, still to this day, it is a little difficult to read. I feel as though there's been a grave injustice Ruth Haley Barton writes in her book, Strengthening the Soul of Leadership. She says, since my Sunday school days, I have known the end of Moses' story. He got to the promised land, but he didn't get to go in. And since Sunday school days, I have understood that this was Moses' punishment for striking the rock at Meribah rather than just speaking to it as God had instructed him. Back then, I accepted the consequence for Moses' sin, allowed myself only a vague sense of a sense that perhaps it seemed a little harsh. But more recently, I had to admit that it seems inordinately cruel. I would side with Barton on this. Why did God have to be so harsh in this moment? Why couldn't Moses just walk over? I mean, just go into there. He had been preparing for this moment, 120 years old. He'd worked so hard, even if somebody has to push him in a wheelchair. Couldn't he get a pass just this once? But when God says, I've let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over it. It seems like one of the coldest most punishing, most withholding words that could ever be uttered. And on top of that, God having Moses walk up there and says, hey, this is all of it. You'll never walk into it. For me, it seemed like he was rubbing Moses' nose in it. It seems unfair. And for a long time, I thought it really was. For a long time, I didn't like to think about this verse. But I started thinking of it in a different light recently. And I want to bring those two thoughts and two points out for you and I. My first point is that the promised land It wasn't Moses' promised land. The promised land of Jericho, the promised land of going there, it was not Moses' promised land. Now hear me out because I know that sounds like a riddle, but it's not written in there. Uh, I've actually looked over the whole story. I've seen, uh, tried to look for any time that Moses tries to fight back and say, God, will you please let me enter this place? But nowhere in the text does it say that Moses was sad about not being able to enter. 
I think I read my own feelings into it sometimes, which, to be honest, a lot of times we can do that. Because I'd been dreaming about the promised land for so long. I'd been reading about this land with milk and honey, the Israelites' journey in this desert with grapes bigger than basketballs. But I wanted with my whole self to be in the promised land, to be there. And then I started thinking. It reminded me of a very rich and theologically deep song by not a theologian, but by Miley Cyrus called The Climb. I know, I I attended seminary, I read Bonhoeffer, but when I hear the song The Climb, I start tearing up. I'm on my bike rides and I'm just crying. uh, It says this, I can almost see it, that dream I'm dreaming, but there's a voice inside my head saying, you'll never reach it. Every step I'm taking, every move I make feels lost with no direction. My faith is shaken, but I, I gotta keep trying. Gotta keep my head held high. There's always gonna be another mountain. I'm always gonna wanna make it move. Some uh, always gonna be an uphill battle. Sometimes I'm gonna have to lose. Ain't about how fast I get there. Ain't about what's waiting on the other side. It's the climb. Thank you. In case you couldn't tell, I went to college to learn how to sing opera, and here I am singing Miley Cyrus in a sermon. <laughs> but in the very wise Miley Cyrus's words, or whoever wrote it, it's not about the destination, but about the journey, the process of getting there. And we see in the journey of Moses that he had been changed by the process and by the journey. He is a changed man, and the promised land for him, it was not what it once was. It was not Jericho. It was not on the other side of this mountain. It's no longer the land of milk and honey. It's no longer on this earth anymore. We can think, oh my, that is so unfair, but I've recently had a change of heart. I think that Moses got the better end of the deal. He got to pass away to spend eternity with God. He had worked so hard for so long with the stiff-necked Israelite people who were never thankful for anything, sinfully groaned and complained about everything. And he got to see the promised land, and then he died to be with God. Was that his promised land? We actually see through Moses' journey that he develops a friendship and a relationship with God. He loves to go up to the mountain, loves to spend time with his father. He goes to the tent of meeting place and a cloud comes and guards the door. There in his life, something had changed, just like Miley talks about. He had grown such a deep love for God. In the promised land or anywhere else on this earth, it was not his promised land. Not the place where he would find rest and solace because That was only with God. Turning back to our verse, because we need to recalibrate after talking about Miley Cyrus. (laughs) The Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I've let you see it with your eyes. And I hope with a different perspective on this, you can see. But you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, he died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. He buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. I love this verse. His eye was undimmed, his vigor unbated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days, and then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses ended. To our eyes, it seems unfair. 
To our eyes, it may seem like it crosses a line. We may cry out, injustice! But Moses received his promised land. Finally, there would be nothing standing between him and God, the lover of his soul. And this is what I have come to see so clearly. For Moses, the presence of God was his promised land. Everything else paled in significance compared to that. And then it got me thinking, what is the promised land for our church? What is the promised land for Christ's family church? And I started thinking about our mission statement. And it says there, to living God's truth and growing followers of Jesus. The promised land for us is intimately knowing God and his truth and growing followers and apprentices of Jesus. Not just saying that we are a Christian, not just wearing a cross, not just putting a cute Instagram uh, quote of the Bible in our, uh, in our Instagram bio, but living his truth in every area of our life, daily turning from sin, daily repenting, daily turning to him, opening our Bibles and allowing him to form us. That's why our discipleship process is so vital here. Five points, knowing, growing, seeking, teaching, and blessing. Knowing God, growing closer to God, seeking those who don't know God, and teaching the next generation about God and blessing our community. That's the promised land for us, what we strive for, what we are called to do, and why God put us here in this building, on this corner, in this town, to help our community come to know Jesus, to have a burning bush moment that stops the whole scroll in their life and so that they can find the promised land of eternity with God, to show them what the promised land is, that it isn't anything here on earth, but the promise, the true promised land, for you and I is eternity with God in his presence, where, where he wipes away every tear, where we see him face to face, where we are reunited with the lover of our soul, the one who made us and who yearns for us. Paul the apostle, he wrote this so clearly, and I feel like Moses almost would have quoted it in this moment possibly. But it says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And we know that verse. If you have been in church for a little bit, you've heard it. But I love it how in the Amplified Version it bears it out a little bit more. For me to live, it's Christ, because he is my source of joy, my reason to live and to die. That's gain, because I will be with God in eternity. For you and me, there is a promised land here and now, and that is reaching our city for Jesus and his truth, seeing those who are far from God be filled with new life in Christ, to see lives transformed and salvation happen and people turn from sin and destructive patterns to the truth of Jesus. That is our calling and mission. But the true promised land is on the other side of this life, where those who follow Jesus with everything that they are will be with God in eternity in heaven, in a new world with new bodies, no pain, no hurt. That is the promised land that Moses lived into with God. That is the promised land that is available to you and to me. And guess what? It is unfair, but I don't want to ask for fairness in regards to the promised land. My first point is the promised land for Moses, it wasn't his promised land. And number two was that Moses prepared the promised land for the next generation. Moses didn't prepare it for himself. He prepared it for the next generation. He gave everything that he had to prepare the promised land and the people who were going to enter it for the next generation. From Exodus on, Moses is the central point of the story, but it changes the next page over as we enter the Ketuvim or the histories. There in jo Joshua, it says, the and after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joseph, son, uh, Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, it seems very harsh, right? But again, it's for the next generation. It seems hard, but it's important to our story. Moses prepared the promised land. 
for Joshua to lead the people into. Moses knew that one day he would be gone, the Israelites would uh, be in the hand of God ultimately, and the leader that God chose for them. And that is my solace. The one thing that our founding pastor of this church, Al Vandermeer, said when he left Christ Family Church, he left it after starting the church. Some people came up to him, they said, the church is going to crumble without you. And he said, well, I hope not, because then I, would have built, I wouldn't have built a church, I would have built a cult founded around me instead of Jesus. Al Vandermeer, the founding pastor, the founding families of Christ Family Church, the members and supporters of this place, they did it in the beginning for themselves to start a church here, but also for their community. They wanted to reach people in Davenport and in Bettendorf that no one else was reaching with the truth of Jesus and his message. And they were all about doing things that were out of the box to reach anybody. They started in a, um, a hotel at a Holiday Inn and they were like, come on in and you could smell the breakfast being made on Sunday mornings but they also did it for you, for me, for the people our church is currently reaching. And we must continue to prepare the promised land, not for us, but for the next generation. We as a church must continually seek to prepare our church to reach the next generation of kids, the next generation of teens, the next generation of followers of Christ, because our call is the church, as the church is not just to sit in our pews and think about our needs and our wants, but to put the needs of those outside our four walls above our own, to seek to have others' lives changed by the gospel, that brings us together right now, the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are centered around. Oscar Romero, Archbishop of in San Salvador, who was martyred because he advocated and reached out to the poor in uh, South America, he wrote this. It helps now and then to step back, to take a long view. The kingdom of God, it's not beyond our efforts. It is not beyond our vision. We accomplish it in our lifetime, only a fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's word. We cannot do everything. Moses couldn't do everything. This enables us to do something and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way. We may never see the end results, but that's the difference between the master builder and the worker. You and I, we are workers, not master builders. We are ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own. We are preparing our church, not just for us, but for the next generation of followers. We are not master builders. We are the workers. We are ministers, not messiahs. And we are prophets that look forward to what God wants to do in our church here and now, but also moving forward. Moses prepared the promised land for the next generation. And you and I, we are called to do the same to step back, to see it from the long view, to put aside our preferences and to become prophets of a future, not of our own, to point others into a future with Jesus that we might not be able to taste here and now, but we will see on the other end of our life and to trust in the master builder. In an effort to reach those who knew no one else is reaching, I wanna ask that you would continue to prayerfully bring every part of our church and Sunday gatherings before God as he moves in us. We are going to ask God to guide us that his Holy Spirit would work through broken people in our church to reach those who are lost and who are not just lost now, but destined for an eternity apart from God. And I know that I am called to do everything within my power and ability to help them come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And guess what? It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair. Why should I give up my preferences to reach somebody who doesn't know Jesus? Why should I give uh, to the work that God is doing in our church to reach someone who is lost? 
It is unfair. I am the one who is here. I've been here. Shouldn't my needs and wants be met over those who are outside of these walls? I believe it's our fallen nature, in our fallen nature, that we cry out for fairness. But I believe, I believe it's in our ungodly nature that we demand fairness, especially for Christians, because if you were to really focus on heaven, you would realize how unfair it is that you will one day get to see Jesus face to face in heaven while others will spend eternity separated from him. You will have riches of life, riches of heaven, but yet on this side of the earth, we complain about what is fair, our wants, our needs, our desires, and what we would like, our preferences, or that we don't like the music the younger kids listen to when, when we are called to imitate Jesus, when we are called to show others Jesus through us. Jesus didn't cry about unforgiveness as sinful men condemned him to death. Jesus didn't cry out about unfairness when he was nailed to a cross for your sins. Jesus, who did not look to fairness or what he deserved as God himself, pure and blameless, took on sinful appearance and died for us. He looked to the greater need of the world. And it's because of Jesus on the cross that he unfairly went through for me, which makes it possible for me to stand up here and, and, and it makes it impossible for me to stand here, demand my own way, demand my own preferences, my song selections, my color or the paint of the carpet. It's hard for me to demand fairness when I remember Jesus on the cross. When I think of Jesus, I'm reminded that this building, this church, this family, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's all centered around Jesus. And the call of our church is to live God's truth and grow followers of Jesus when I remember that if things had been fair, though, if you and I had got what we deserved, then I wouldn't have received life everlasting. You wouldn't have been forgiven of all the sins you've ever committed. If things had been fair, I wouldn't have been forgiven of my sins. If things had been fair, I would not have my life changed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. If things had been fair, I would most likely be dead right now instead of married and living in Iowa expecting our first child looking forward to heaven, the promised land. So the next time you try to demand fairness for you or your own preferences, I want you to remember Jesus on the cross. I want you to remember Moses on the mountain, how he worked his whole life to prepare the Israelites for the promised land. And he walked up to it. He got up to the mountain and God said, that's the promised land, but it is not for you. And Moses didn't say, that's not fair. But instead he went and spent eternity with God because he realized it wasn't about him, it was about the next generation of Israelites who would follow God, and today it's not about you. It's not about me. Christ's family church is all about being the family of God and growing the family of God, reaching the next generation for Christ and instilling the truth of Jesus within them. It's not about preparing a promised land for ourselves to enter. Jesus already has that there is a house with many rooms and he is preparing a place for all those who follow him. It's not about fair because guess what? Life isn't fair. And thank God it isn't. Because if it had been fair, I don't want to think about it. It's about giving sacrificially of ourselves so that we can see lives changed by Jesus Christ. Personally for me, I remember walking my first time into a class, into a contemporary church. I'm a classically trained musician. I spent years of my life honing my skill, my ears, listening to Bach, Mozart, Chopin, Fauré, Debussy, Dvorak, contemporary Christian music. It's not my favorite. 
singing lines over and over again is not my favorite. I want a pipe organ. I want a full orchestra. I want Handel's Messiah. But it's not about my preferences. It's not about my comforts. Christians didn't reach the lost because they stayed in their comfort zone. The truth of Jesus was shared and spread because people chose to go and to teach others the truth of Christ. Church, I love you. I want to ask you, will you continue to seek to be like Jesus? Will you continue to lay aside your preferences to reach a world that is hurting, that is needing Jesus? Let's lead them to the promised land, knowing that we have a place prepared for us in heaven with Jesus. Let's turn from our own wants, desires for me and mine, and let's shift our attention to them who are outside of our four walls. Let's shift our eyes to Christ and to the people in our church who we are called to serve and love. And let's continue to prayerfully ask that Jesus would move in us, that he would move us to be his hands and feet, to reach the lost, to share the gospel with them, and to introduce them to their Savior. Let's continue to pray and pray that God would use us, broken human beings as we are, but that he would use this church to fulfill his great commission, that we could be a part of that great commission work and see people reached for Christ, see orphans become children, see people pass through the Red Sea like Moses did and come to know who Christ is, see miracles and lives changed. Who are we called to be as a church? We are called to be a church that opens our doors wide to the world, that welcomes them in, that teaches them the name of Jesus, his truth, and that calls them to repent, to turn from their sinful ways to Christ and follow him with everything that they are. We're called to be a church that takes orphans and turns them into sons and daughters of Jesus. We are a church that is called to the outcast to take them and turn them into apprentices of Jesus Christ. We're called to prepare the promised land for them to enter and to give everything that we are to see this world changed by the truth of Jesus. In closing, that's a tall order, right? It's like, well, I want to go back to uh, the quote where he said, hey, you know, we can't all get it done, but we can do something. I want to ask you this week, the practice this week that I would ask you to do, and you can take out your phones, take a picture of it, but number one, pray that Jesus would help us to reach and teach, to focus outside of the pews and onto the people in our community. Pray for those in our community who don't know Jesus. Who uh, One of my favorite things to ask is if, you were, if all your prayers were to be answered this week, who would be saved? Who would come to know Jesus? Will you this week take a moment to pray for those in our community who don't know Christ? And then number three, I want you to invite somebody to church next week. We're starting a new sermon series. It's on the parables of Jesus. Everyone loves a good parable, right? It's a wonderful story. I love them. Invite somebody to church, your neighbor, the person at Hy-Vee. The cool thing about going to the grocery store is that they can't like start checking out the next person until you've paid. So you just hold your card there. You're like, hey, would you like, would you like to come to know Jesus? I can't tell you how many cashiers I've held hostage. Just, just come to church. It's right over there, like down the road. Okay, I'll insert my chip in a second, but let me first tell you to come to know Jesus. Invite somebody to church next weekend. You don't have to take a, a cashier hostage, but you can. <laughs> Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your life and for your love. I thank you for the changed lives in this room, not because of fairness, not because of what we deserve, but because you came down and you gave us what we couldn't earn. You saw that we could never earn it on our own, that we could never be perfect. And you came down and were good enough for us so that we could enter into heaven, so that we could not even just that, but have a relationship with you here and now, so that we could talk to God the Father and have our lives changed by you. 
Jesus, I pray the sermon wouldn't go in one ear and out the other. It wouldn't just be another Sunday, but it would be a Sunday of change for our church so that we can look back and we can say, on June 25th, 2023, our church picked up the commission and focused on those outside of our church. We changed, the, we changed Bettendorf and Davenport because we picked up your mission and we chose to be builders and to be prophets, not of our own future. Jesus, I thank you for this church, for the years of commitment. I thank you for the past year of change within our church and how we have weathered it, how we have weathered the storm, and we are coming out stronger because of it. And Jesus, I look forward to the wonderful future that you have for your people. And Jesus, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come, that you would move in and through us, and we'd be a church that doesn't just focus on ourselves, but that looks out to those in our community. And in closing, we pray the words of Jesus, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory Hey, again, we hope that you enjoyed that teaching from Pastor Zachary and being a part of what God is doing here at Christ Family Church. If you'd like to come visit us in person sometime, we meet every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. And if you'd like more information on our church, you can head over to ChristFamilyChurch.org. Once again, thanks so much for joining us. Have a great week.